Yesterday on the 10th of Tibet. How many? If, it, if you know it snowed in Jerusalem. Yeah. Rabbis, almost 20 inches in some areas. Three days of record snow. Really? And they were saying it's coming on the 10th of Tibet. That was a huge blessing, and it was a showing of purity and that Israel had been forgiven. Wow. Now, this brings up an amazing year ahead of us in 2014 or the latter half of 5774 and 5775. There are some signs in the heavens that are extraordinary. And the first Tuesday, here's the press report. And the first Tuesday of January, the signing class will be getting an incredible understanding of these signs of the times from Joshua Spurlock. If you're glad he's doing that, would you just say thank you very much. Ladies, you can certainly view from afar and later on if you choose. My wife actually did that last Tuesday. I came home and I was telling her all about the Zadi class. She's, she's I saw like, the class. Right, and then he said this. Yeah. Whoa, that's so creepy. How'd you do that? <laughs> it will be written down. It will be an audio cast on the um, iTunes as well. You can, you can watch it, you can hear it, and you can uh, see his slides as well. But no women are invited. What? Women cannot come. That is correct. <laughs> you can watch from afar, but you will not, you will not study in the same room as us. We'd like you guys to be together. Yes. It, does, uh, it does make more men of us, doesn't it? So for those of you who did not take the opportunity to pray with us this morning, uh, you missed out on uh, an outstanding opportunity to see... Uh, to see Yehuda... Get called up to the Torah in a real Torah service after his bar mitzvah. I don't know if they're still watching. I suspect so, but if it were my birthday, I don't know that I'd want to be watching us. But Gabby and uh, it's Gabby's birthday, Gabby Upham, and uh, they are in uh, California. And uh, they were praying with us this morning behind the blue light. So if they're uh, still there, Gabby, Mazel Tov, and happy birthday. By the way, with Yehuda, Monday night is his big brown belt test for karate. Oh. The brown is that like right before purple or black? Yes. Two before black. 
Two before two black. Two before black. It's wow. going to be a massively difficult test yeah. physically. Okay, so a little bit of prayer may be worthwhile. Unshakably, <laughs> he's the youngest. If he succeeds in passing this uh, test, he'll be the youngest uh, out of the class that he takes out. Of his school, of basically, to, to, at 12 to get a brown belt. How about That's that? That's amazing. Wow. So as you know, we always have men that are armed with firearms when we meet. <laughs> Judah's always we may, armed. We may be able to remove one firearm from the group if necessary. <laughs> Take a good like, do you have a weapon? No, I am a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. The other highlight of our Torah service this morning was the debut of uh, Mr. Taylor Tapacanti. Extraordinary. I tell you, he was looking pretty swanky with the tie, the cufflinks, the suit. Now he's now he's trying to do the John Travolta look. So you know, <laughs> blessed you, Adonai, our God, King of the Universe, who has sanctified us with His commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of Your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of Your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of Your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know Your name and study Your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are You, Adonai, who teaches Torah to His people, Israel. Blessed are You, Adonai, our God, King of the Universe, who selected us from all the peoples. And gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Amen. Before we get into the last portion, this is the 12th portion of the year, by uh, before we get into it, um, we did have the privilege of uh, watching as God sustained us to this season to see the end of the reading of the book of Bereshit. And uh, it's, it's an amazing absolutely amazing portion as we see the blessing of the children of Israel from their father. As we, as we go through our portion discussion, I am going to um, bring, with the help of some of the other men here, three different books to your attention. You may not have actually held in your hand. You may go blind if you do, but this one is one of the volumes from the Talmud. And many of you may have never actually held the Talmud in your hands. Like I said, you could go blind. But um, on the uh, right-hand folio page, we have the Hebrew, and on the left we have and the, Aramaic. the uh, English, and we have the Aramaic, and we have the uh, Rashi script, and we've got uh, some uh, commentary. So... Um, There's really no page number for me to deal with here. So I'm going to pass this around. For those of you who have never seen the, the Talmud before, because I'll be referencing this later. Um, but if you flip the page, flip it back to this page, because it's, uh, it's difficult to find those pages. The center, of the, the center of the folio is Aramaic. The funny-looking Hebrew script is Hebrew. It's Rashi in Hebrew. And the Gemara is around it. It is amazing that a man who did the first line-by-line commentary of the Torah, and then did the first line-by-line commentary of the uh, Tanakh, actually came up with his own font before there was fonts, before there was a computer. It's the first Steve Jobs. Unbelievable, right? And he's drawing it so consistently that we're actually able to reproduce it today with the computer. The second volume that I'll be sharing with you is, uh, you know, we, we say, or you'll hear sometimes, uh, in the Midrash it says... And uh, normally we're speaking of the Midrash Rabbah, or the big or the great uh, Midrash, or searching out, or sermonette series, or whatever way you want to put it. 
Um, there is a midrash for each of the books of the Torah. Uh, there is uh, another one for Lamentations, Ruth, Megalot. Actually, I think of all right. of all, all the Megalot have have a have a, a midrash. I think that's about it. Mm -hmm. What's um, a Megalot? <laughs> what? Okay. Oh, what's, what's the Megalot? What what are the Megalot or the scrolls? This would be the, the five books. Holidays. Lamentations. 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 Ruth. Ecclesiastes. Song of Song of Songs. Ecclesiastes. 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 Song of Songs. And the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Solomon. So this is uh, is addressed as either the Midrash Rabbah or specifically the Midrash Bereshit. And uh, this one actually has no page numbers that will help me, I think. So uh, again, try not to. 98, 2, 98, 1 and 2, yeah. <laughs> so don't flip the page on this, we'll go this way on this one. Uh, basically, same kind of deal. You've got the folio page in the various Semitic languages, and then you've got the English, and what's actually in the Midrash is in bold, and then the English that's been fitted through it to help you understand it, and uh, the commentary from this particular publisher is here, and then there's footnotes at the bottom. It's extraordinary, and we're going to take a look at that as well. And then finally, the, uh, the last thing that I would share with you uh, today, you've heard much ado about, and, uh, and I'll be asking Rick to read several passages. Um, this is nothing more than a chumash. What's a chumash? It comes from the word five, and this is the five books of Moshe Rabbeinu, and a chumash always has commentary associated with the text. And that commentary is, by default, Rashi. Rashi's. And then, depending on the publisher, we may have some other players that have been brought in. Now, my family was introduced to the Gutnik. The Gutnik Chumash during this portion. And my daughters, all four daughters were sitting there as Rav Uziel, inspired version. As Rav Uziel read uh, the description of Joseph out of the Gutnik, and their jaws dropped. And you know, it started with, "Whose Bible is that? Is that really the scripture? Oh my goodness, what? They're making it up." And yeah, and then you know they started making fun of it, but um, it was it was spectacular. So I'm not going to pass. I will pass this one around too. Um, Just to be fair, the Gutnik always puts in parentheses the commentary that they add, the paraphrase they add to the scriptures. Well, let's let's talk about their paraphrase and the reason why a lot of us enjoy reading the Gutnik. Okay, I think we've got notes over there. Versus uh, the Art Scroll. Art Scroll is good too. Uh, or the uh, JPS. The uh, Jewish Publications Jewish Society. Publication Society. I, I mean, you know, it's, it's just like New American Standard, NIV, EBS. Is it really that different? Well, you know, it's, it's going to be a flavoring based on the commentators and the translators. But with the Gutnik, what I like, and I think what most of the folks appreciate, is, as, as Rick said, the, the paraphrase is put in parentheses. But the neat part is where they get the paraphrase from. 
from where they get the paraphrase. So what they'll do is they'll go and look at all of the sages and what everybody had to say in the Midrash and in this and in that, and they'll come up with what they think it's actually saying, and they'll write it in that way. It, it actually reads like a first or second century Targum, which which would have been the same scriptures that the first disciples used. Correct. And, and would be interpreted or translated with a paraphrase flavored. to it. Mm -hmm. So it's flavored towards Messiah, towards or whatever the case might be. And they use the KJV? <laughs> I don't think they use the KJV, but it's up for debate. In most, uh, if you're behind the blue light, he said that, not me. <laughs> and and the, Gutnik, the Gutnik actually has more of a messianic flavor than even Art Scroll. But Messiah is exactly always right. mentioned, All right. which is which is exactly why we're going to be reading out of that today, uh, as we hit uh, the blessing for uh, Yehuda. Think of the Gutnik as the Jewish version of the Message Bible. That's right. That's, that's exactly. Know, I, right. I don't think I don't think that's very far off. Except the Message Bible, you, you question the guys. Where did they get it? Whereas I would say in the in the Orthodox Jewish community. They know where they got it, and they mostly agree with it, where you and I would just, you know, trample the message on your feet. <coughs> well, <laughs> perhaps you wouldn't. Uh, so again, the Rashi script, we've got uh, commentary uh, from Torah Menachem, um, from the Rebbe. So uh, I'm, I'm going to pass this one on, but don't, don't flip the page on that one either. Actually, all the, all the Rebbe's are included. All the Lubavitch Rebbe's okay. are included. Did you know? What's your name? <laughs> okay. So summarize for me, if you would, what, what happens in Vayechi? He lives. And he lived, but he died. So it starts out with, then he lived. Or did he die? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> means and he lived and it begins and Jacob lived, right? Um, and, it, and it talks about him being there and, and we get to the uh, the blessing of Joseph's sons and and Joseph too actually and uh, and yet the story in its fullest expression when you get to the end of it is really not about his life, but rather that he died. So he lived, but he died. Okay? So what's what else? What's curious about this this passage? The switcheroo. The blessings. The switcheroo. <laughs> right? So who gets who gets the blessing? Who's supposed to get the blessing? Firstborn, right? Firstborn gets a blessing. Yes. But never gets the blessing. But never gets the blessing. <laughs> we have the first Adam, we have the last Adam. Well, now let's notice the people blessing, the blessings always um, almost blind. <laughs> well, now that's a good point. Isaac was near blind. He's, you know, feeling around for the hair on the back of the neck and all of that. And here Jacob can barely see. Who are these kids? Who are these kids? Who are these kids? That line's really cool because one of the things I love about the Torah that I've seen this year is the passing of tradition from one father to the next. That they, the fathers, this is one of the things that God says about Abraham, you will command your children. Yes. The fathers were so good at teaching their children the virtues and values, and they were so consistent in their own life that their sons end up repeating the exact same things that they did. 
So when, when Jacob says, whose are these? It's the exact same style language or similar question to what Esau asked Jacob like many years before. Right. Who, Who are they? Because and, and, he had sent the kids ahead. And Jacob and Joseph both had the same response. These are the children that God has given me. And it's so cool to see that passed down, to see that just as Jacob gave the glory to God for having passed these on, Joseph, even though he spent by this point like you know 10 years or 20 years in Egypt, that hasn't changed his character. He still sees God as the one who blesses him. Amen. Good. Beautiful. So we're going to get into the blessing of the kids. And uh, with another cool thing about this parasha. Yes. First time in the name of our Messiah is mentioned. That's right. We're going to get into verse 18. But uh, it is pretty amazing. And we'll when we get there, let's bring that up. Have we got my book coming back? Yes, ma'am. Is this one? Uh, I think that was just starting out, or is that no, coming back? I was coming back. Check out the one I put in my bag. Ah. <laughs> I guess I don't understand why Joseph, why, is it, why there is not a tribe of Joseph. There is. There is, but there isn't. There's three. Yeah. It all depends on what verse you read. We're gonna, or or what's taking Nick place. Like, oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you had the good Nick, you'd know the answer already. <laughs> no, um, no, we're going we're gonna to get into that. Because it really is kind of curious. Is if you ask me, kind of it, it does it does help with it's that. It's a lot of commentary. Sure. Yeah, it's a lot of commentary. And we're going to read some of that. But if you were to ask me the names of my five children, I am so fastidious. That's a good word. That they're all that they're always in the same order. Always. The only time that I take them out of order is when someone says. How many sons do you have? And I said, they're all sons, except the four girls. <laughs> but I always, I always name them in order. And when I introduce them, as they know, I normally say, this is my first daughter, Morgan. This is my second daughter, Julian. This is my, that was my third daughter, Christine. My fourth son. My fourth, my fourth child is my son. And my fifth daughter. My fourth daughter is uh, is Mary's, but I will number them like that. I'm on the spot, but but it's interesting when you look at when you look at Jacob's sons, they're not always in the same way. Some of them are sometimes actually missing in the various lists. That I find as a dad extraordinarily curious. This one right now is not mine. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's like, what is that? Uh, uh, Tepia does that. Goes, this one, this one is mine also. This one, this one is not mine. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I thought that um, the Bereans email, email, and answered that or helped absolutely or confused anymore. <laughs> good stuff though good stuff good stuff all right what else about this portion before we start to get into the text it's a pretty short one obviously based on the time frame it took to read blessings are really prophetic and really cool they are awesome. and we're going to talk about that and in fact those are the pages that i've turned to in these uh, three references here to talk about jacob is going to tell them what's going to befall them in the end, end, of, days. In the end of days oh my goodness this is, I mean, if you're doing a prophecy deal, I, I would definitely want to be here. Of course, it seems a little less than what I expect. It's not like reading Daniel, you know? And then on the 14th day, in the 32nd year of this, 
this is going to happen, and here's the guy you need to look for. And by the way, if you turn to the appendix, I put a picture of him there. Yeah. It's, it's not like oh, but that part was sealed. That was sealed, and we're going to get into that in a minute, too. So that does, uh, if there's no other comments, that does give us a pretty good segue into the sealing. Vayigash, Vayikhi are back-to-back. It's the 11th and then the 12th portion, and they're unique. What's unique about them? Well, I had a different question, but okay. I was wondering, why is the Hebrew on the left side exempted? Because that is a Hebrew book, so it's starting this way, and the other one is an English book, I believe, starting from the other side. Good point. So tell me about these... I feel like this is like the end of a, a television season. It's like okay. a special double I- episode yeah. at the end. Yeah, We're yeah. Gonna, you know, go right so why, the why do you say it's a double episode? Well, what makes you say it's a double episode? Well, because there's no, there's no skip. Traditionally in a Torah scroll, you have space between each of the portions. Can, uh, can somebody hold up a large print chumash and show me that? Johnny, what do you got there? I don't have the portions back in school, but there's a page term. Yeah, page term. Ah, page term. Not really going to demonstrate. So they have like, there's no space. Yeah, that'll work. That that, that actually will work. Whoa. There's a heart on this one. I don't know what that's all. What are you doing? You're upside down. I know it's upside down, sweetie. I do have some idea what I'm doing. So if you take a look at the Hebrew that's on my left, your right. You'll see that there's a gap here, and there's a gap up here. Does everybody see the gap? Mm-hmm. See the gap in the text, right? The gap. There's a gap. You see the gap? And yeah, the gap there. The That's exactly what we're going to talk about. You see the gap, right. right? There's a gap up at the top here, and there's a gap over here. Okay? See the gap? There's a gap here, and there's another gap up at the top, right? In the text, right? So you see there's a gap up here, and there's a gap here. Okay? So we got the two gaps already. You got the gaps? All right. So the idea is that. Between every sidra, between every portion in the scripture except these two, there's either a gap that's sufficient to put nine Hebrew letters, or they put a hard carriage return and they start on the next line. Always. Always. Except between these two. It's like the two-hour episode at the end of the season. It's like that double thing. And they say that it's closed. Um, there's multiple reasons. The sages are all give, like, really me, curious. Yeah, oh, they're all My the favorite place. one, yes, though, give me a cool. is that um, they say that Jacob wanted to tell his, his sons the time of the end, but it was concealed from him. Actually, which, he forgot. Which is he was about like, to tell them exactly <laughs> what was going to happen. And it's gone. But then it lost. Oh, man, it was right there. It's like, I had, I had a date on the end of my tongue, and it's just gone. And it's gone. So the... It was closed up. But it's so much like Daniel, because at the end of Daniel, like, the angel tells Daniel, got all this extra stuff for you, but you need to conceal that in a scroll and seal it until then. So I'm going to read from the Midrash Rabbah. This is the the Midrash. And um, if you look at the text, I'm, I'm just starting here. And assemble yourselves, and I will tell you what will befall you in the end of days. That's how this paragraph begins. So it's quoting the scripture. They don't tell you where the scripture is because they figure you ought to know. If you don't know, you should be reading something else. What exactly did Jacob intend to tell his children about the end of days? The Midrash presents several opinions. Rav Simone said, Jacob showed them or foretold to them the downfall of Gog, 
king of Magog. As it is stated, and he quotes from Ezekiel 38, Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to God, It will be in the end of days that I will bring you upon my land, in order that the nations may know me. So that's what this rabbi was saying. He was using that phrase just like this. Rabbi Yehuda said, Jacob showed them the rebuilding of the Holy Temple in the Messianic era. Mm. As it is stated, it will be in the end of days that the mountain of the Temple of Adonai will be firmly established. That's from Micah chapter 4 and verse 1. The other rabbis said, Jacob intended to reveal the end. That is, the date of the Messianic redemption to them. But it became concealed from him so that he was not able to divulge it. The Midrash notes a parallel to this incident. Now, can you see yourself sitting with a good cup of tea or coffee, your feet up, and you're reading through this? And you just got the ramblings of the rabbis, soaking it up. And what happens? On Shabbat afternoon, you come and sit, and you can simply just pontificate on what the sages were talking about. Why? Because you've been reading what the sages have said. That's where these guys get this cool stuff from. Rabbi, uh, the Midrash notes a parallel to this instance. Rabbi Rav Yehuda said, in the name of Rav Elazar Bar Avina, there were two individuals to whom the date of the end was revealed and was subsequently concealed from them. And they are these, Jacob and Daniel. Regarding Daniel, it states, As for you, Daniel, obscure the matters and seal the book until the time of the end. Daniel 12.4 And of Jacob, it says, Assemble yourselves, and I will tell you what will befall you in the end of days. Reuben, you are my firstborn. And he forgets. This teaches that he was about to reveal the end to them, and it became concealed from him. The Midrash illustrates Jacob's abrupt change of topic with a parable. This may be compared to the friend of the king who was leaving the world. That is, he was dying. With his children situated around his bed, he said to them, Come, I will reveal to you the secrets of the king. But upon lifting his eyes, he saw the king standing before him. So then he reconsidered and said to them, Instead, be vigilant regarding the honor of the king. <laughs> Similarly, with regard to our father Jacob. Though he had originally planned to reveal the time of the redemption to his children, upon lifting his eyes and beholding the divine presence hovering over him, he changed his course and said to his sons instead, Be vigilant regarding the honor of the Holy One. Blessed is he. Now, what do these guys get out of that? Cool story? Yeah. Did they lift up God? Absolutely. Did they teach about Messiah and his coming? You bet. Did they use the scriptures reliably? I yes. think so. I just read half of one page out of this whole deal. And just so you're not confused, this is Vayeshev to Vayechi, which is not even close to half of the book of Genesis. Could you make? Got nothing to do? Feel like the Bible's getting a little stale? They don't call it the Rabbah or nothing. Good stuff. Thank you. Well done. Yes, Jonathan. And none of that is meant to be considered in a literal sense. I mean, the whole book is not... Exactly. If, if you're reading, okay, so these guys are crazy because they actually think this actually happened. <laughs> they don't think it happened. It's, it has nothing to do Terrible. except the spiritual truth that it's trying to portray, which is this, basically, that you know, even if God had, had given Jacob the ability to, 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 to recall it and to have it all you know, uh, exactly how it's going to be, 
that's besides the point of the fact that these men still have to live like they don't know the, the, exactly. at the end of the days. And, and, and they have to right. be expecting to buy this and, and, and honor, right, the, the, the existence of the king regardless. Yeah. That's the point that the whole story and the whole Midrash Rabbah is trying to give is the yeah. spiritual truth behind exactly. it. Exactly. Good. Without precluding in my uh, discussion time, and I'll leave next Tuesday, with regard to the notion of poetic language in the scriptures, and our, 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 our sages are very, very good at this, and they understand it. But those of us that come from a Western background expect to expect to believe what we read. And so we have difficulty sometimes and we, when we say, well, that didn't really happen, so why are they even saying it? Um, and, and what we don't recognize is that we do the same thing in Western culture. We just don't recognize it as being the same thing. For instance, we say things, we speak in similes, we speak in homilies, we, uh, we use poetic language. When we watch a movie, we don't want the facts. We want all the glory that goes with the movie, including, you know, the music, you know, the the uh, the foreshadowing, all those things. But don't give me the facts. I don't want that. I want the story being told to me because I want an experience. Exactly. And the sages know this. They're not about simply giving us the facts about what happened in Genesis chapter forty-seven through fifty-one. What they want us, they want us to experience it. And by doing, by using. The, the, the tools of the Midrash, by using the tools of gematria and, and the tools of Hebrew poetry, they're able to give us experience that we would not otherwise get. No, you cannot it. get the, ex, the expanse of you know, some great movies like Sound of Music by somebody telling you about it. That's right. You have to experience That's exactly it. exactly right. And we see this same type of storytelling, if you will, in the apostolic scriptures, especially from Paul. There's two types of writings from the, from the sages. The first is halakhic, which speaks specifically about how we should walk based on what we have read. The other, which Rick is talking about, and I think the word he was searching for to cover all of those, is agadic. It's storytelling to get a point across, and as Jonathan said, it's not the story, dummy, it's what the story teaches. I, didn't, I know you didn't say that. But that's what I got. <laughs> when we were mentioning there are the benefits of, of reading that, one of the cool things is just how it connects the Torah to the prophets, and then yes. what we have the benefit of doing is then connecting that to the apostolic scriptures. Amen. Because just as they connected Genesis to Daniel, then like first thing that comes to mind is Revelation five, mm -hmm. where it says, "But what after it said no, they couldn't find someone to open the scrolls." Yeah, um, no, open the scroll at the seven seals and it says but one of the elders said to me do not weep behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals going back of course to this portion where it mentions the lion of Judah Amen. exactly right good job that connecting the dots in Hebrew is called remez because it's a, it's a hint you get a hint there, and you want to... I've read that somewhere, you know? Good. Good, good, good. And I, I feel like, in, when I think about that way of looking at Scripture, it's, um, I think that it's something that God wants us to do. And I know that some people get scared by that because they want to be like exactly what the text literally says, and you want to stop there. But I feel like um, that is God's primary message. But I think it's like God wants us to delve deeper because... Not necessarily to say that we're going to like undermine, that's certainly never undermine what the primary message is, but it, it shows a delight and an interest 
in scripture to want to dive deeper to want to know like that word spelled wrong why is it spelled wrong that's what i have watched you do with my daughter you when we first sat down barely knew her were very concerned about her response if you asked if she would court you because you didn't know how she would respond and you didn't help me unfortunately. I tried that. <laughs> but I have watched over the years now as you have mined and and gotten to know her so I've seen my daughter open up in ways that she doesn't do with anybody else. And some of the things she writes on her blog about you are extraordinary. So you're actually living out what you're telling us we should be doing with the precious word of God. And I think that's really, really cool. Okay. What's interesting is before Christianity was called that, in Antioch they were called Christians, um, it was the way. Or right? Or Halakha, I should say. It was the way. Jesus was the master of Haggadah, the story. So it's interesting that he mastered the story, but it was called the way. And the way pretty much is what's in the Mishnah and what's in the Gomorrah, all the rules and regulations. And of course, when it comes to Paul, there's a question, should we keep them, should we not? There was a small discussion in the corner over here about that very thing. But what I think is interesting is that when you look at Jewish history over the past 2,000 years, Originally, halacha was very important, but Haggadah was considered more important than halacha because you can learn so much from it. But unfortunately, what's happened with Jewish history was that halacha seemed to take on precedence while the story seemed to take on a lower level. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It, it really has and, changed things. And I think one of the reasons why, I might add, in Jewish history because there's in recent Jewish history, there's, a, there's an idea that it's better to be a atheist who's, um, who's very, what's the word? Uh, Observant. Better to be a, a, a Torah scholar who's an atheist than a ignoramus but who's a Kabbalist. That's right. a, someone who's plugged into spirituality. And I think the reason is because someone who's a Torah scholar about what to do and what not to do will pass it on. Or someone who's just focused exactly. on the spiritual, they don't really have any... any exactly. Uh, tangible yeah. heritage to pass. pass on. Yeah. Now, and and that, that's the experience actually in, in, in evangelical Christianity and in, in, in especially in charismatic mm -hmm. movement. It's usually one generation. They've got the experience, but there's nothing to pass on. Which is why it's so important to have traditions that you tie into experience. So whether it's like things like Havgalah, whether it's something like you know covering your bread for Shabbat, and what does this teach us? You tell a story about it, Amen. you know those types of things, and I think that's one reason why like Yeshua, like even like with the the Last Supper, or the Lord's Supper, he's he's attaching a practice to a story. He's wanting us to pass on a concept, but at the same time, it's going to be something we do. And I think that's one reason why like when we read these things, like I mentioned earlier, like seeing the coolness between like Jacob using the same language as Joseph, it's like well, what does this teach us? It teaches us that as fathers, we need to teach our kids. You know, and as, and as kids, we need to listen to our fathers. And I would point out that even in participating in the Seder, he was following the tradition that had been set down right. to tell the story. By doing and we so. are commanded to tell the story. Absolutely. Colby and I this week were talking about just 
business books in general mm -hmm. and noting that our favorite ones are the ones that include a lot of examples yeah. of people that have applied the principles that you're you learning want to about. read the stories. Exactly. And going through how many times we've gone through the Torah at this point, the principles are kind of in there. Uh, now it's just let's let's learn about the stories and the people that have lived them out in certain <coughs> ways and get inspired by that because that's what inspires action is Amen. seeing someone else do it. And, you know, oddly enough, read about as you look at the apostolic scriptures, both Yeshua and Paul and Peter, in fact, I think all of them, if you look back when they quote from the Tanakh, it's rarely, if ever, a direct quote. They're paraphrasing it and putting it in terms that we can understand. Okay. Good so comments. Yes, ma'am. We're talking about relationship, intimacy versus you know, knowing versus knowing Absolutely. about. Correct. So, Absolutely. Very, yeah, I think that's the, the bottom line to it all. So let me make one more um, footnote caveat about the text that I passed around. This is personal. You can argue with me all you want. If you don't know the scripture, you should not be spending time reading the Midrash. You should not be spending any time reading the Talmud. You cannot understand these texts unless you can apply them to the text of the scripture. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, study to show yourself approved to have memorized the scripture. That's not what it says. What did Paul tell Timothy? So that you can accurately handle or rightly divide it. Well, how do you do that? You know it. You know what the sages said about it. You know the stories about it. But ultimately, you know it so that you're not twisting the scriptures. You're actually cutting through it. Good. Okay. We're going to... Um, we're going to pick up at the beginning of the portion, 47 verse 28. You move smartly if you want to cover those blessings. I, really we're going to take like a whole chapter in one breath. So okay. take a deep breath. That was good. There it is. <laughs> when the time drew near for Yisrael to die, he called his son Yosef and said to him, Where are you reading? 47 verse 29. 29. Genesis 47, So you're using an English Bible, so it's not broken into the portions. And I would not say that the text is what I'm concerned about, but if you get a Hebrew Bible, it'll be broken down into those portions easily for you, so that you can see those. Also, the portion itself is busted down into seven readings. That's why seven men come up to read. So, tomorrow being the first day of the week, you read the first Aliyah. And the second day, you read the second Aliyah. And Friday night at uh, your Arab Shabbat table, you read the seventh reading, and you're ready for the whole thing. And okay. come together. Pretty cool, eh? Yeah, that is cool. Why do you... Oh, I beg yeah, your pardon. Just yes, sir. Maroon shirt. Swanky, buddy. Yeah, thank you. One thing I noticed this year, because the the um, half Torah reading is kind of, you know, David giving his final words to Last Solomon. Charged yeah, to it's so sure. interesting because uh, somebody a while back had had a little quote that was really cool, and they said, 
nobody on their deathbed ever looks back and says, boy, I wish I would have worked more. You know, they always wished they would have spent more time with their family. But sure. thinking about all of the people on their deathbed that are dying and are, about, are telling things to their children, it's interesting that they don't usually apologize for anything. There's, like, never really regrets. It's always, all right, here's what you've got to do instead of, like, ah. Oh, been meaning to tell you this, or you know, well, I'm so sorry I wasn't there more. Or, you know, none of the things that we hear more often today. Yeah, so it's a cool example of fathers in scripture. Yeah. Fathers are important. Why do you suppose Jacob called Joseph? Give me some some examples. Just shout them out. Well, he has the. He knew his address. He knew his phone number. But he knew his email address. He has the authority to bury him in Canaan. Okay. That's one reason why the sages say he makes him swear. Because you look at it and you go, well, he doesn't trust Joseph. Yeah, yeah. But he, the, the sages say that Jacob knew Pharaoh was going to have an issue with this. This is the dad of one of their top dudes. And he doesn't want to be buried in my country. Good, good. It'd be like, you know, if uh, Ronald Reagan's son's like, no, we're going to bury Ronald Reagan in some country in Asia. Or He's not going to be in Arlington Center. And we're like, um, we're no, bury him in Canada. no, we're not going to do that. Yeah, what? Anyway, so like in this case, um, he makes him swear. And, the, and then Pharaoh later says, do what you swore to your father. So Jacob's a smart guy. Yeah. He knows how to play the games. Mm -hmm. Good. What else? Yes. He, he has, he has uh, Jacob or Joseph's two sons particularly in mind. He's got a plan. He, he knows his time's coming, and he's going to bless his sons. He must do that. But he's got a little thing he wants to do ahead of time. We do the same thing in our family. We're having 35 people over. We'll have the we'll have the kids over first. You know, we'll we'll have a little little thing, and then all the rest of you show up. You know, that kind of thing. So, what's the deal? What's the deal with Joseph's sons? Are there 12 tribes or are there 14 tribes? What's up? Come on. There. Go I knew I heard a little. And the inheritance. Levi has no inheritance in the land. Why does Levi have no inheritance in the land? Because Hashem says, I myself am your inheritance. So they're able to draw nearest and are interfacing with the Holy One of Israel on a daily, all-day basis. So they don't need something physical. They've got the physical presence of God. And then the physical tabernacle, which they are custodians of. Good. So... Um, so so from an inheritance perspective, I'm down to 11 guys. So I've got 11 guys, and I need a filler. But, you know, the first time they heard about this special inheritance of Hashem, it comes across as a curse. Judah draws back. He doesn't want to hear this. This doesn't sound good. Because he just said, he talks about Ruvain and, and Levi, and he basically is castigating them for what they did to Shechem. And it says you're not going to have a portion with your with your brothers. Right. Well, what we find out later is that's actually a good thing because right. Levi for, for and Shimon as well. We know historically right. Shimon was scattered through all the tribes. Right. He, Shimon has a little portion of land, but that's not where they end up. They end up being absorbed by Yehuda and they end up being scattered all over the tribes. Huh. Let's let's be clear. That was anachronistic, right? Does everybody know what that means? Place in time. Yeah, I mean the fact that Levi Levi's got no physical inheritance, no land apportioned to him is not known by Jacob yet. That happens right. when they leave Mitzrayim, Egypt, right? So, but let's talk about it. So we got 12 boys, now I'm down to 11 because 
inheritance, I'm, I'm only going to have 11 to give out. So how do we get to 12? Joseph comes out. His two sons go into his place. You take out one from 11, you get to 10. You add the two sons, and we're back up to 12. Very clever. If for some oddball math reason, you have to have 12 to divide by. Also, this is a somewhat sneaky way of Jacob to give the firstborn portion to Joseph. Right. Traditionally, the firstborn gets a double portion. He gets two. Exactly. The kicker is Joseph's firstborn of Rachel, but he is not Jacob's firstborn, firstborn quote son. Unquote. So in Who order, is? Reuben. Mm-hmm. Well, then, but then not Reuben. So and then not Simeon or Levi. So kind of Judah. So basically, the way that it ends up, um, uh, the way that Jacob kind of gets around this very awkward situation to a degree, in a sense, is he adopts Joseph, Joseph's two sons. And then gives a full portion to each of them as his sons. So that's not any type of old man ranting kind of thing. There's actually a purpose in mind. Jacob's a genius. It was pre-mit. Yeah, good. He is very lucid at this 147-year-old. Yeah. Go. Good. All right. It seems to me that it's not really his um, doing. Uh, um, wouldn't I would perceive that God just directed his mind to do what he did. I mean, God had the plan. No question. And he was just the vessel. No question about it. So but I'm it is interesting. Him attributions of uh, being manipulative or you know convoluted. You know that he definitely changed. There's no question. He changed yeah, what was going to happen. The fact that God told him to do it. Is, no one's disputing, but he definitely did change that Reuben should have gotten a double blessing. Yeah. I'm not uh, saying that it was bad that he did it, but it is there. And we know that the Torah later will teach us You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to do that. If your first son is a bad son. It's just not the guy you thought he was going to be. You cannot skip him. Well, no, it's the wife. I don't know if it's really their son. If it's the, the son of the wife that you didn't know. But still, it's the firstborn gets passed over. You can't pass over that firstborn because of the wife. Right. Does it make sense? I mean, we're not, you and I are on the same sheet of music, right? I think so. That we don't want to put him down. Oh, I wasn't putting him down. If God's telling him for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah I agree. All right, other comments? All right, so now what's he do with the hands? No, I beg your pardon. You know, it was interesting when uh, Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? And he said, you know, my kingdom is not here. Sort of a left-handed answer there. I guess so, and I am left-handed. But what's interesting, if we sort of take a quantum leap back to the story, here we have Manasseh and Ephraim getting a tremendous amount of land in Israel. And Judah does get an amount. But in terms of the reward for Judah, it was more on a spiritual level in terms of the point that you made, in terms of the mentioning of the Messiah, the illusion, and of course you'll be talking about what does that word mean, and there's so many you different bet. things. So it's sort of a kingdom from somewhere else as opposed to Manasseh and Ephraim getting physical land here, but no necessary spiritual thing that Not yet. kings from there. Right. Good. All right. So we're talking about the hand deal. What's up? Uh, What's that? Your right hand. 
No, no, not that. No, that was pretty cool too. Top of the head. 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 Joseph brings him up and he puts on his oldest on his right hand so that he'll be, wait, I got it back up. Well, to Jacob's right hand. To Jacob's right hand. So he expects his dad to go, to go your right. Right, but Jacob. Jacob does one of these. What does Joseph do? No, no, Dad. Dad, come on, you got it all messed up. Don't you know, you, maybe you can't see, Dad. Yeah. But this is all juxtaposed against the question that just that, that Jacob asks when he walk they walks in. He says, "Who, who are, are these? these?" So he doesn't know who they are. That's what some might read this to say. But he knows enough that when Joseph says, "No, no, no," right? He says, "No, no, I know what I'm doing." It's like what? I thought you didn't know who they were. Yeah, you didn't know who they were, and you can't even see them. Who's who's talking about the the blind guys, right? Exactly. The blind dads. Yeah, the blind dads club. But this guy knows. Okay. So we get the uh, we get the adoption. We get the double. Uh, Joseph, yes, ma'am. I, I, I was thinking about this uh, earlier today when we were reading it in the in the Torah uh, uh, service, where how how remarkably this is, in a way, in a, in a midrashic or or even a hidden way, uh, this is reminiscent of the question that some might ask Yeshua, "Who are these?" And and in referring in referring to those who are who have no tribal inheritance. And who are these? And and as if not knowing, and yet they do know. And 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 the the idea that they come through Joseph, they come with Joseph, um, that they may not be recognized, but ultimately Israel recognizes them. So Messiah brings and, and Messiah the brings them, ones, but and it is and they're adopted into the house. That just works for me. But if you'd like to see Joseph today, you can go to the place that Jacob gives him, Shem, which unfortunately today is known as Nautilus. Um, we still call it Shem. We still call it Shem. That is where Joseph's tomb is located. Exactly right. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that Ephraim and Manasseh become the subject of blessing for all of Israel. And he we, says that would happen. Exactly. But it's what's interesting about that is you know, if you picked other people, you, you might have a story attached to them, like what they did or, mm. or kind of who they were, but they don't really, you don't really hear much about them, which yeah. is fascinating because it's almost reminiscent of, of a way that, you know, we, we don't necessarily, we didn't really earn salvation in a way, but it was just a blessing from God. And same with Ephraim and Manasseh, they didn't do anything to get an inheritance or a blessing or anything like That's that. Right. They were just born <laughs> to Joseph. Right. That's right. And they were given that without having done anything, which is really interesting that we it's good peril. use them. It's a good peril. What does uh, Manasseh mean? Forgetful. Forgetful. Well, why would you name your son Forgetful? can't remember. Forgetful. The heart of God. Wait, I forget. I forget. Wait, what? Why would you do that? To be yeah, just forget all this tough time we had. You know, what's, what's a fry of me? Fruitful. Having a fruitful future. What a great blessing for boys. Chapter 49 and verse 1. Yaakov called for his sons and said, Gather round, and I will tell you what will happen to you at the end of days. I'm going to continue reading the rest of the sentence out of the Gutnik. But Yaakov found himself unable to reveal the time when Mashiach would come, <coughs> so he changed the subject. That's what I have for verse 1. That's pretty much what the ESV has to do. <laughs> it's, pretty much, it's pretty much, it's close, yeah, okay. All right. 
So we don't have all day. I'm, I'd like to jump down to Judah. Does anybody have anything really cool to say about something Actually, before, prior to that? Before you do, and I know this is the end of days, and I know that the sages say, well, this all happened. It's really not the end of days. I would disagree. I would say that, as we see throughout Scripture, there are patterns that are repeated again and again, mm -hmm. and that something that has happened to our forefathers will happen to us as well. Sure. And so it, I believe it is the end of days, but I think it is also being carried out among the tribes. And just a couple here that are just really remarkable. Uh, uh, we know that uh, Zebulon, in fact, is does have a portion of the land is given to him on the seacoast. He ends up being a great provider for Israel through that, the, through that commerce. Yes. And even remotely, uh, our, our brothers uh, Sephardi are, in fact, from, uh, from the lands that would have, that would have been you know, transmitted when they were dispersed because of, the, of the, the outposts that Zebulon had established throughout the Mediterranean. Yes. Uh, yes. We, from Issachar. We, you know, Issachar is a place of Torah study, Usha. And and uh, Usha, the place of the of the Sanhedrin. You know, this is uh, this is you know anything that we have uh, from the sages. You know, we, we owe to Issachar's land because all of it's happening in the in the second and third century in in the land of Issachar. Right. Good. Yeah. On that Issachar Good. point, they um, they say that the, there's a phrase that the men of, men of Issachar understood the times. There's a tradition. This is just tradition. Tradition that says that the calendar that Hillel established came originally from the tribe of Issachar, and they they talk about Issachar being Torah students. They tie it to this blessing because it says that even though they saw the land was pleasant, this is verse fourteen. Yet he bent his shoulder to bear, and he became an indentured laborer. And they say that it's a good thing, saying that he worked and labored in the Torah. And they they pair him with Zebulun because Zebulun was like the businessman, and Issachar was like the Torah guy. And basically, Zebulun helped provide for the Torah guy to keep his study. Very cool. It's very, very cool. prophetic of the second and third century. These, both Issachar and, and Zebulon, very much. Yeah. Uh, I overlooked Colby before. Uh, talking about Judah, verse, we're in chapter 49, verse 9. Second part, it says, He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. So it's interesting that it, it said lion and lioness. And Skip Mullen did a really cool drosh on this where he talked about apparently there's six words used in Hebrew for the word lion. But these two in the ESV did a good job of translating it as lioness on the second one, but it's just the word lion. Um, and he, he paired it back to like Ezekiel 19.6 talking about a lion as well. But it was interesting when you think about the lions and it, it says lion and lioness and the first lion, of course, is pretty common to us in Messianic Judaism and Christianity, Lion, King of Judah. Um, we clearly see Yeshua right there, but the second lion, a lioness, and looking in the wild, the lioness does all the hunting. So so when you think about that, you think of blood, because the lioness is killing things. And it was interesting that, you know, Yeshua first came and gave his blood, you know, on the altar um, in the heavenlies. And then the second time when he's coming back, as the lioness, it's a different kind of blood, and it's more of like a, a blood of judgment. You bet. And, um, and it's, it's not his. And it's pretty scary. Yeah, it's not yeah. his. It's Who is this man from Basra with yeah. his robe dipped in blood? Plus the Shekinah is a feminine word as well. Okay, good. Well, that's good. Shekinah, right now? 
future one here as well. Dan seems to be describing because Dan seems the protector of Israel. Is he with the rider and the horse? Yeah, but he's on the he's on the he's on the road. As as a, as a, as a viper in the road, the horse is, uh, and, and and the and the rider is is thrown thrown. And it says and he's the salvation of Israel. Hmm. And Dan in the very north, of course, at Ezekiel thirty eight, we see that the that the invasion of the land comes from, from the north. It's the north. You bet. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. So in the mountains of Dan. Today, Dan would be Kerat, uh, Shimona, um, yeah. up near the he- uh, near Mount he- Hebron. Uh, no, Mount uh, Hermon. Hermon, excuse me. And so they uh, had a Syrian border, and that's also actually interestingly enough where, like the tradition, of course, talking this passage, they say that this is linked to the Battle of Gog and Magog, which is at the end, mm-hmm. and from the Book of Ezekiel, and that is where like God unleashes His wrath on this massive army coming to wipe out Israel. And he obliterates them on the northern mountains. While he's saying this, you should all be going humming in the back. No, we're in the south. That's a wrong It absolutely wiped out, and it is in that northern portion, which is interesting that when he just talking about a northern tribe, he then says, I long for your salvation, O Lord. And he again recognizes that it's from God that salvation is coming. One other quick thing about Simeon and Levi, because I know you want to go to Judah. I do. I've been talking about Shimon and Levi. We're not letting him go to Judah. We got other stuff. I was actually going to start with Shimon and Levi. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think one of the things the sages say that's really neat is Jacob is upset with something that they've done. But he's, and so he curses, but he curses their anger. He doesn't curse the person, hmm. which I think is an important lesson in general when like dealing with someone. Are you, are you, are you giving me the... Love the sinner, hate the sin thing. Is that <laughs> what you're giving me? But the point is, though, but like I think oftentimes when we hear that, it's like you want to give the guy a hug and be like, what you're doing is wrong, but it's okay. That's not what Jacob does. Jacob's like, what you're doing is wrong is awful. It's horrific. I curse it. But he doesn't curse the person. So it's like he, he sees like the potential for redemption there, but he doesn't compromise on his view of what they did. Which I think is really kind of a cool way of looking at it. It's like it's something wrong with being strong about someone's actions. But he doesn't, he doesn't like, it's like if you were to, um, you can tell a... Well, he's going to tell me a story now to make his point. Because he doesn't think I got it. Oh. Do it. Okay. I was going to say... <laughs> this, is, this is what his father just told us the, the sages do. I guess a hypothetical story here. I hope. Um, if you were to confront a homosexual, you would say that his activity is an abomination. Yes. You would not call him an abomination. Right. But you would be uncompromising on what he's doing. Absolutely. So you're really walking that line on love the sinner, hate the sin. 
Well, they still got some consequences, though, because they got passed over for the... There's yeah, always consequence to sin, yeah. right? So it's not like he said, you know, I... I it's okay, it's okay, did, forget it's about it. They still got consequences for that. So just, how, many, how many of you actually thought when you, were, when you finished reading this portion, we were, we were dealing with that whole Italian deal? Uh, yeah, the, it's definitely that? like the table. Oh, my man. goodness, God right? God. And that was the David thing, because I just because of the accent yeah. I brought. <laughs> right? I mean, it was amazing. Yes, Mediterranean. So are you saying when they say, I will scatter them and Jacob and disperse them and Israel, them is referring to anger and fury? No, no, I'm that's saying that that's not the curse. That's not a curse. His okay. curse, he does that's say, accursed is their rage, okay. for it is intense, and their wrath, for it is harsh. So he specifically curses their anger. Or um, their actions. Yeah, right. And then prophesies about their future. And then prophesies the future. And the prophecy sounds somewhat negative, but it doesn't have to be negative. That's the truth with any consequence. A consequence feels bad. It does not be pleasant. But if you are repentant, you can use the consequence to change yourself into the right kind of person. And that's what happens here. The consequence of scattering levy ends up resulting in a blessing because they teach the entire tribe, all the tribes of Israel, the Torah. The consequence of scattering Shimon saves Shimon because they end up hanging out with Judah. And Judah's the only ones that get spared at the, uh, for, the, right. for the most part. Yeah. So it's not, that's the thing. It's like consequences always come, but what do you do with them? So it's not really, it doesn't have to be a curse. And what God does. Right. Behind you. Senor, are we on Judah? We're close. God bless you. All right, so I'm going to, I want you to, uh, I don't want you to read your Bible right now. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to um, pick up in verse 5. But I don't want you to read your version. You've already read your version. I'm going to read beginning in verse 5, 49, verse 5. And I just want you to hear, again, it's the Hebrew that's inspired, not the English. So what we're reading is the sages' explanation and interpretation as they lay it out for us. Let's see. How you like it? Are you okay? <laughs> You're pregnant. I can pick on you. Shimon and Levi are the brothers who plotted against Shechem and against Yosef, too. Their murderous use of weapons has been stolen from Esau. Esau. When the tribe of Shimon will conspire against Moshe, do not let my own name be mentioned with their conspiracy. When does that happen? Korah. Yeah. You know Korah's rebellion? This is the tribe he's from. No, no, he's from Levi. Yeah, it's, yeah, His friends. Yeah, the uh, 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 Oh, the other guys. Because yeah, we're going to get whatever. into Levi. Yeah. When Levi's great-grandson, Korah, or Korah, and his colleagues will rebel against Moshe, do not let my honorable name be associated with their rebellious congregation. Shimon and Levi killed every man in Shechem to vent their anger, and they willingly attempted to maim Yosef who's like an ox. Hmm. The king of animals. Cursed be their wrath, for it's powerful, and their rage, for it's callous. I will separate them by denying Levi a share in the land, like the other sons of Yaakov. And I will scatter both of them throughout Israel, since the tribe of Levi will be searching for tithes, and the tribe of Shimon's source of income will cause them to spread out. 
when Yehuda saw that Yaakov was rebuking his sons, he drew back. So <laughs> Yaakov called out to him, Yehuda, you're not like them. Your brothers will acknowledge you as their leader. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. From Yehuda, King David will emerge first as a lion cub during Shaul's reign, and then a fully grown lion when he becomes king for himself. Even though I suspected you of a plot to tear Yosef like prey, you withdrew yourself from the plot, my son, and you refrained from killing Tamar. Or Tamar. Therefore, your descendant, King Shlomo, will crouch and rest like a lion while the Jewish people dwell in safety. No nation will dare intimidate him as if he were a lion. The stick of authority will never leave Yehuda nor scholars from the feet of his descendants until the coming of Mashiach, to whom kingship belongs. He will gather the people. In Yehuda's territory, wine will flow like a fountain, such that a man will harness his donkey to a single vine of a young donkey, or a young donkey to a single vine branch, and it will already be loaded to capacity. There'll be so much wine that a person could wash his clothes with wine, and his robe with grape juice. People will be red-eyed from wine and white-toothed from the abundance of milk. This comes from what the sages say about the days of Messiah. In Messianic days, everything grows better. Everything is in abundance. Can you see how they've played it out and you see it all come together? Just not, and I'll know it was worth the time. Yes. <laughs> On that note, there is a what used to be to me a perplexing statement by Yeshua in the Gospel of John alluded to by some of the other Gospels where he's at the wedding at Cana and his mom comes up to him and says hey they're out of wine and he says to her it's not a rude statement but he says what has this to do with me woman that's what he says ma'am <laughs> My time has not yet come. And then she kind of probably looks at him and says, that's fascinating. Anyway, just whatever he says, just do it. And I always wonder, what's he talking about? Like he, he didn't seem to answer her in appropriate fashion. Like it's a non sequitur. Well, it appears to be. It appears to be until you look at this, where it talks about the abundance of wine. So... As Yeshua often does, and John has Yeshua saying, taking common statements and turning them to the spiritual. For like the, the woman at the well, hey, you don't have a bucket for water. Speaking of buckets for water, I have eternal water. And that's not what she was talking about. Likewise, Yeshua's mother, when she says, hey, they're out of wine, she's just talking about basic wine at the feast. But Yeshua sees an opportunity and seizes it and says, my time has not yet come. In other words, right. Yeshua is going to fulfill this, but not in the first coming. Mm. So it's not mm. as though Yeshua tried to fulfill this and it, Israel just wouldn't cooperate. Uh, the mm. Jews just weren't working out. So yeah, abandon that. No, pause. Does everybody understand what he just said? Mm -hmm. It wasn't like Yeshua came and the Jews blew it Therefore, he's got to come a second time. They hadn't blown anything yet. He already knew his time had not come. But he was alluding 
to the days of Messiah in his response to his mother. So, so to conclude, Yeshua is explicitly stating this, and he's saying, it's not yet. Exactly. It's coming, but it's not yet. So don't expect me to do what this says yet. So that is very helpful for understanding that cryptic phrase. Amen. Good. Well done. Huh? I like that. Woo! Because I was being a Bible leader for 20 some years, not until I started understanding the Constitution of the Bible or the Torah did I understand that point. And so um, I think that's a, that's and that to me, I mean, earlier when you were talking about reading this and reading this and reading this, to me, it just blows my mind how the Christian people today don't want to do that. I want to separate myself as far away from that. I just want to do what Jesus did. Yeah. Well, Hello. you can't understand what Jesus did unless you understand the foundation. I, I keep harping on that, but it's just being the, being fairly new, it's just it just blows my mind the things that I'm learning now yeah. that I wish I could go back in time and learn. Wouldn't it be great if when, when we were studying we, we had some of these gems there I believe that those who are still in the visible representation of Christianity today would have a much more abundant life because they would sense mm -hmm. God's presence, provision, and, and all of that so much more than they do today. And why they don't want to do that is, is the thing that just frustrates me. <laughs> That's what I had to learn. What you mentioned in terms of my time hasn't come. So here's something that actually happened about 2,000 years ago. One event that happened, and it was recorded. Now, think about this, that the time hasn't come. That means it's for the future. But how many New Testaments are there, each of them containing this story that exists right now? Millions and millions. Millions and millions of this story has sort of metastasized, if I can use that term in a positive way, in a benign fashion, <laughs> so that billions of people are aware of this story. So because and, and every time you read that story, there's almost a reenactment of that thing, of billions and billions of gallons of wine, theoretically, from that theoretical kingdom that he was referring to with Pilate. So in a way, the time, we're sort of in this continuum, it's a calculus, we're approaching that point, that he will be here, but we can really see the Amen. explosion. Amen. And personally, I know you may disagree. And having that much wine around on a regular basis sounds like heaven on earth. Joseph. Yes. Just real quick in, in, in response to Jerry's comment, you know, at, at, at the time of the Reformation, the early Hebrew roots movement actually was, was strangled in the cradle by, by Luther himself uh, because there was an explosion in the time of the Reformation, not just in Lutheranism, but throughout the Protestant world, in exploring these very books, the Midrash and, and the Talmud, there were whole sections of seminaries that were studying the Talmud, and it was Luther that put an end to it because of his disillusionment with Judaism. That's right. That's true. He had uh, strongly hoped that the Jews would recognize Messiah and that they would be at least amenable. Become Lutherans. At least be amenable to 